You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. Is this the house now? No, that's not yours. Yeah. No. Yeah. That looks different. Bro, I, I finally bought it in March. Right. We talked then. Right. And then remember the landscaping? I worked like a savage and did all this. Oh, that looks great. That's a lot of work. And then the house, the outside looks different too. What's that porch deal you got going on there? That porch was always there. It was just screened in and it was covered by bushes. So the second the ink was dry, the chainsaw came out and all those were gone. And I popped out the panels to open it up and it just changed the whole look of the house. And then uh, Dustin Livingood came over in uh, June and he spray painted the house for me. That's awesome. I forgot. He's a, he's a master painter, isn't he? That's his job. Oh, he's incredible. Yeah, like what a lot of people don't know is like not only does he have this painting business that he bought when he was like in his early 20s, but he's like a ridiculous artist, mm-hmm. you know, like painter, does all these things. He's kind of like a little, he's like our uh, OCR Michelangelo. That's high praise. What a masterpiece. Yeah, I could do it all. So wait, so you're kind of running like you live out of your house and you also kind of side hustle it as an Airbnb. Is that right? had to pivot and adapt, uh, because of COVID, you know, like, um, I couldn't rely on personal training anymore. I didn't have an online coaching presence. Um, I'm just not really comfortable doing it online. Some people are great at it. I'm not, Mm. um, I'm more of like kind of an in-person kind of guy. And then on top of it, I've been coaching, teaching, instructing since I was 18. I started getting burned out. So with, between the burnout and then the lack of opportunity because of, you know, world circumstances, I'm like, I need to pivot. So once I paid for the house, I'm like, you know what, I'm going to, I live on this gorgeous lake. Kirk, you know all about it. Like, you know, like the, the beauty of living on a lake. Bracken's been here and, you know, I live within an hour of New York City and a couple other big metro areas. So I'm like, this is a perfect opportunity to circumvent and and turn it into a, a halftime Airbnb. And as it turns out, I'm probably here less than what my guests are, but it it's paying so well that I'm going to ride it until, um, until I can't do it anymore. So, um, it's paying for a lot of the renovations, uh, additions, things that are going to make money again in the future. So it's, uh, it's really worked out and I, I love it. I enjoy it. I enjoy being in the hospitality business. And I think I kind of found like my next thing, that I want to do for the next 10 years. I kind of go through these cycles for every 10 years. I, I do something, I do it with all my heart and then it kind of like runs its course and then I try something new. And I think I'm at that point now where I'm ready to move away from doing like fitness instruction and that kind of thing and kind of get into a, a different, like more quiet time in my life. Where are you staying then? If they're there more than you are. My parents live five miles away and they just bought a house in Florida. So they're well, not there right. a lot. So I'm kind of like caretaker of their house um, when I have to move out of here. Or it's a lot of times it just lines up with trips I want to take. So if there's an OCR weekend I want to go do and the house is rented, great. I'm not here anyway. Um, if there's a weekend where I don't have anything going on and it gets rented and I don't want to visit my parents or 
you know, maybe they're home and I just don't want to be there. Um, th- not that I don't love them. I love them to death, but you can only take so much time with your parents. Um, I'll, I'll take a trip, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I just went down to Mexico city for like a week just to do something new. The typical summer, summer destination. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've never been there. Wanted to do it. There was actually a Spartan weekend down there. I had some friends, so some miles on the credit card. So I'm like, let me go try this. And I'm just going to kind of use that as opportunities to take these other adventures, whether it's like a road trip or something on a plane or, or just go camping out. I have fallen in love with going camping all the time. So my truck is just always filled with gear now. And I can just pop up anywhere, pop up the tent and, and go do it. Kirk just bought a camper a few days ago. Did you? I'm just following your footsteps, I guess, Kevin. See, I would have a problem with people using my shit all the time and getting their dirty little hands on all my stuff in my house. And I have to go clean it all up. I don't know if I'd be into that, Kevin. It's different. You know what? I tell you what, it's when you first start, it's scary because not only are you letting strangers come invade your place, but um, you're thinking about the things they're doing when they're there. Right. I mean, I could just imagine if Bracken rented my place. I mean, I did. Me and Benny for a weekend. It can't be worse than that. Imagine if I, I, I see Bracken coming down the hill, right? And I'm like, God, there's this like, this Adonis walking down the hill with his wife. And I'm like, the sexy time nonsense that's going to happen all over this house. I'm like, what, what, am I going to be able to handle this? You know, like when I come back, what are the thoughts going through my head with a guy like Bracken with all these good looks and all his charisma just coming down the hill, turning to my house into his own, like, you know, his sexy palace? What am I? Oh, my goodness, Kevin. That's happening every weekend at your house, Kevin. Every weekend. And none of them are as good looking as Bracken or you. So it's like. Listen, flattery is going to get you far here, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, I tell you what, I mean, it's, um, it is tough. Uh, I spent, uh, I invested a lot in uh, lots of bedding and comforters and extra mattresses and things like that. So I got to cycle things a lot to make sure. But also the people that are renting this place, I've rented it out 31 times now. Out of those 31, I only had one group that I was uncomfortable with and actually had a boot out. Everybody else has been uh, phenomenal. I've met a lot of really nice new friends, had a lot of repeat customers and guests, um, thrown a couple parties for them. It, it's been a blast. And I, I got to tell you, Kirk, I really like the hospitality end of it, of having people come down, opening your home, you know, doing the things for other people that kind of make you feel good. You know, like it's a lot of work, though. I'm, a, I'm the handyman. I'm the maid. Um, you're, you're making beds. You're cleaning toilets, you're cleaning the shower, you're cleaning up messes, you know, and then you're doing it with a smile and you're making people feel comfortable. So I don't mind it at all, but it's a lot of work. I want to hear the booting out story. The what story? You said you had to boot a group out. I want to hear about this. Oh, some, uh, some chick boot, um, booked a weekend for her husband and her father for Father's Day and like the two brothers. So I was like, oh, this is going to be like, you know, a nice Father's Day weekend. The guy was like, you know, like 70 years old. The the son was kind of like my age. The brothers were a little younger. These guys roll up. The windows come down. And the smoke cloud was like Cheech and Chong coming out of the car. I mean, it was like Snoop Dogg 
rolled up with his entire posse. Because I mean, weed is legal in New York now, but it also has to be done in you know a way that's you know responsible. So they're already hammered, wasted when they roll up. The weeds come out. So there's four of them. Like, oh shit, this is gonna be a bad one. I'm like gonna have to hang around and kind of keep an eye on these guys. So they come down. I go down to the other side of the lake, and I have that new Samsung Galaxy 21G, right? Like it has a camera that has a hundred times zoom. So I, I had to do a little spy action across the lake. These guys are rolling around the water. They caught a turtle. They started they started messing with the turtle, like the snapping turtles, poor little snapping turtle. So I'm like, oh no, this has got to stop. So I come on the road and I come back. As I'm coming back, three more guys roll up. And they're like, I was like, hey, can I help you? They're like, yeah, is this 98? I was like, yeah. They're like, okay, how do we get to the lake? And I'm like, hold on a second. I'm like, you're not like supposed to be here. And the guy's got like a backpack and I can smell the weed coming out of the backpack. I was like, you guys got to stay here. So I go down and I see them and this fucking turtle's got a fish hook in it. I was like, I take the fish hook out of the turtle's mouth. And I was like, listen, you guys got to fucking go. I'm like, you're done. I'm like, you're inviting other people over. I'm like, you're hammered. I don't mind like that. You're indulging in your, your legal right to smoke marijuana now, but this is excessive. I'm like, you're already damaging the property. You're hurting the wildlife. You're being loud. You got to go. And these four guys stood up and I thought they were going to square up. I'm like, here we go. My first fight at the new house. And they're just like, okay. And they turned around and they left. And I called the wife and told her what happened. She was mortified, still paid me for the whole weekend. And that was it. So I made a little money. I saved the turtle. I stopped the neighborhood debauchery and everything worked out. I didn't get a broken nose. That's less exciting than I was hoping for. <laughs> That's the exact reason why I'm not turning my place into a Airbnb. I'm telling you, Kirk, that was the only time. The other times, it's been a dream. But it depends. Like, if you're making good money off it and the money is worth the risk or your your comfortability to a certain point, then it's, then it's worth it. But if you're not comfortable with it, don't do it. I, I do enjoy the smell of weed. I just don't enjoy smoking it. So maybe it'll work out for me then. You enjoy the smell? I do. Oh, I think it's horrendous. Yeah, I don't I don't like it either. I've never I've never done it. Um I I, I don't maybe I'm not as bad with bracken thinking it's horrendous. I just don't really like it at all. And I don't know, maybe it's just because growing up like my whole life it was illegal and it was so taboo that when I smell it now, it's just kind of a, a thing that goes off in my brain where it makes me uncomfortable. So yeah, just not something I want. For Braden's ninth birthday last week, I rented a Camaro for the day. Because you rented Braden a Camaro and then smoked weed with him? <laughs> the first part, <laughs> yes. Because he's obsessed with Camaros because of Transformers, Bumblebee's oh, Camaro. Oh, my God. That in here right there. So I used Turo to just rented it from a guy. And I was really, it was the first time I'd rented like a, a higher end car through Turo, and I didn't want to, I was. I was feeling like real protective about it. I didn't want to get, I didn't want to be liable for what, anything that went wrong because we were going to drive it pretty hard. And I open up the door and I realized this guy doesn't care. Just weed rolled out of it. And, and that was it. And I, and, and we just, we just tore that thing up and down the country roads for the, for 24 hours. Oh my God. Dad of the year right there. Uh, except that my son got contact high all weekend. Cause it was just pouring out of the vents. <laughs> what a birthday. <laughs> he was hungry. He was just so hungry. I didn't know what was going on. 
put me in a bath and body works and that is my nightmare put me next to like nice. a house yes put me next to a house where the guy likes to smoke a little ganj once in a while all good baby not a problem again i have no problem with a little bit like again it's in most states it's illegal right now like have at it and I, actually i would rather have him smoking weed than getting drunk but this was like when you talk excessive you're talking excessive mm. like there were felony amounts down here not good <laughs> kevin we uh we tried to make this work a while back and i don't remember what happened but we didn't get it to line up and then i was uh, uh to interview you and then i was watching uh watching west virginia broadcast from like 2019 maybe to get myself in the right mind frame for West Virginia coming up next weekend. And here is Kevin Donahue on the mic. And I was like, why have we not interviewed Kevin? I watched you twice this week while I was cross training. I was like, we got to reach out to Kevin again. So that's why top of mind. And you, and you made a couple funny little, you always make your little jab references that are kind of like half jokes when people are uh, out there hustling. I was like, this guy, this guy, we got to talk to this guy right now. So that's why I reached out to you. Well, I'm glad. I've, uh, I mean, you had reached out in the past, and um, you know, I've always looked forward to you know coming on, um, you know, whenever you guys made the call. But you know, life happens, and you guys get on other trips, and you know, I, I think the thing is, is that you knew that whenever you called me, I would drop everything to hop on with you. Like, I'm not gonna, uh, I was gonna make you wait. Um, the relationship I have with you guys are two of the best people. And I don't say I'm not saying athletes because you get everybody knows you're great athletes, but you're just two of the best human beings that are in the sport. And uh, I think you felt comfortable enough that at the drop of the hat, I'd hop on, and that's exactly what we would do. Kirk mentioned your little jabs you take, or your like little yeah, subtle things. Yeah, I want to know which ones those were. Well, all I know is that less jab based, but the Kevin Donahueism of the of the lifetime that sticks out with me is when you were announcing. I believe Jacksonville. It was either Jacksonville or Alabama, but I think Kempson was in the lead coming through for the win, and you announced him as like, and this young, disease-free individual coming through. And I thought, who's this disease-free on on a running uh, broadcast? But just like your your comfortability to to use a Kevin word, your comfortability to inject something atypical into your broadcast always catches me off guard. I'm on the treadmill running and I hear this, what do you call him? This young disease-free individual <laughs> coming through. And I just, I'm running between my rafters because I'm on my incline <laughs> trainer and I crack my head into the side. <laughs> you know, you know, what's funny about that is that now that actually be a very pertinent, important point in the world climate that we're in. You know, I mean, I might just have to say COVID free, you know, and, and get up on everybody's COVID tests and make sure that, uh, that the Delta variant isn't running through them as they're doing the race and let everybody have it known. But I love movies. Um, I love funny movies. And that line just popped into my head, like out of old school for <laughs> when they were introducing Mitch at Mitchapalooza when they had Snoop Dogg out doing the concert. Mm -hmm. And he's like, here, right over there is a very disease free, like single guy who's part of this is honor for it. And that just like popped in my head and it just worked well. And Kempson's the kind of guy where it makes sense with because he's such a, a wholesome, like good guy that, and he had his, he's got a great sense of humor. I'm like, it just came out. So I'm glad you enjoyed it and did not get a concussion on your, uh, your rafters underneath your treadmill. I'm not moving fast enough for any concussion. <laughs> 
But those are what I'm talking about. I don't. I, I said jabs, but like you know, you'll make a reference like that every couple of minutes. Like some sort of like three percent of the listeners will be like, I know exactly where he got that from. And they should <laughs> and the other three- they just roll off your your tongue. It's impressive. And the other ninety seven percent will be just like, what the hell did he just say? And it just gets <laughs> them thinking. So I mean, listen, we ha- we have a sport that has a lot of running in it, and if you're kind of, if you're too monotone throughout the broadcast, you're not having fun with it. The, the audience is going to get bored. Um, so I, I think what I've, I've learned, like over time, once you get on the mic a lot, and I've had the I've had the the pleasure of listening to Bracken's broadcast for a while because he's done it so many times, and I've had the pleasure of actually doing the 2018 Team World Championships with you. Mm-hmm. And the, the I think that was the most fun I've ever had on the broadcast is when I was with, uh, with you and Pat Parnell, because I think the two of you just had that comfortability where you, you allowed yourselves to have fun and the broadcast should be fun. And if you're not having a good time and if uh, it's important to inject science in there, it's important to inject um, the actual serious parts of what's going on. And there's point in times where that's not appropriate. But there's other points in time where you just want to throw it in there and have a blast with it and keep the audience engaged and keep them having fun and, you know, and show the people out there. This is this is actually a really good time and it could be super interesting. And uh, there's a lot of personalities out there. And if you're not showing that personality as a broadcaster, I don't think they're really going to have it come out with the athletes. I agree with that. Have you guys never hosted together, Kevin and Bracken? No, we didn't. We never got a chance to. No, it was the... It was the great matchup that never materialized. Yeah. He was ducking yeah. me, I, mean, I think. There's still time. There's you know? still time. There's still, there's still plenty. I, I mean, I got to be honest. I think the three of us on a broadcast would be incredible, incredible because both of you have such, I mean, Bracken, your deep analytical dives into the biomechanics and the biohacking while without being too techie is incredible and it's always poignant and Kirk, the amount of stats that you were able to rip off and the de- the attention to detail and the research that you did going into that team championship brought such a level of in-depth insight to what we were doing, but both of you know how to deliver it at the right time to do it in a way where the listener is able to, you know, understand it. It's not too techy. You're not going over their heads. And I, I really love being that point guard where just knowing when to throw you guys the the time to, to speak and, and to sit back and let you do your thing. And I think there'd be a tremendous amount of chemistry there. You just have a compliment list here that you're you're going down. You started with Adonis and now you moved into to our, our commentating. You just checking things off a list. And listen, there's a lot of good things to say here. You're not two guys that I can all of a sudden I have to start digging for a lot of good things to say. It's pretty easy. I will say you are a very good quarterback. I, when we did commentate the Spartan World Champs, you did a very good job of throwing the ball to me, the receiver, when it was the right time. You were very good at like, and we were with Amelia, and you did a very good job of spreading the ball out evenly amongst the field. It, it, it's a lot of fun. I mean, nobody wants to hear me talk for three hours straight. I don't even want to. That would be <laughs> that's my worst nightmare. Listening to me talk too much. So it's 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 great to you know, spread the wealth and, and actually do less of the work because I get pretty lazy back there too. Sometimes I just want to, I can take a nap. People think that I'm just being generous. 
<laughs> I'm taking a couple Z's. Put you know, sleep. Yeah. Go for a little run on course, enjoy myself, and just like Kirk and really do all the work. Yeah, that didn't happen. I uh, I want to know. So so um, Brack, and your handle today is OG number two. Yes. Uh, I finally chosen a one that you can read on air. Yeah, finally. Um, but my kids wonder so, what that meant. So who's the real OG number one? Is it Kevin more of an OG than you, Bracken, or no? Yeah, yeah. Kevin was in the sport before me, and I'm I'm paying I'm paying my my respects to that. I he was in the sport before me. And he may have made a podium before me. I, I actually, I think, respectfully, I think Bracken is definitely wrong on one of those points. On the other point, we're splitting hairs. Like, we, Bracken and I both started doing Spartan in 2011. And depending on when he did his Chicago race, where he infamously failed the over-under through obstacle by hurdling it. <laughs> Whether or not that was before the one I did in Tuxedo. That was Paul. That was Paul. Okay, so we're talking a few months. That's it. Yeah, you were like May or something. You got there You got there months before I did in the sport. It was like maybe three months. It was like June. But Bracken definitely made a podium before I did. Um, Bracken definitely made n- numerous podiums before I did. And as hard as I worked, you know, there was a, a level of my ability to uh, run fast over long distances or even the shorter distances in the sprints where Bracken was always head and shoulders far superior than me. Um, I think one of my best races was Indiana and I gauged that because, wow, I came within almost two minutes of Bracken in a sprint and I was so happy that I did that. And I found out about an hour later that the only reason I was like two minutes behind him was because he waited for his brother Macaulay by the Z wall so he could let Macaulay get some extra points before Bracken crossed the finish line. <laughs> I forgot about that. That, <laughs> so, that was back in the – your points were determined by your percentage of winner's time, mm-hmm. right? You had to play those point games back then. Yeah, so if Bracken had crossed and Macaulay didn't cost for like another like four or five minutes, Macaulay would have scored like a – you know, a 250 as opposed to like a 280. So Bracken being the good brother he was, he hung out. And then Macaulay, being the dick that he is, tried to like, I think, out-sprint Bracken to the finish and take the victory. No, that's two different stories combined. (laughs) (laughs) What happened was I waited and waited at the top of the slip wall, waiting and watching for who was going to come over next. And Macaulay came over and then he failed an obstacle right at the end. And uh, I think Jordan Buscemi came up. So I had to quick scoot across the finish line so I didn't lose it. Someone else tried to quick sprint by. Oh, okay. All right. But, yeah, that was – I forgot about that. That was a mud bath day. (laughs) Oh, that was so horrible. And for the record, Macaulay isn't a dick. He's just a great dude. I like making fun of him a little bit. He's a great guy. You know what? He is because he was supposed to come on this week, and we couldn't couldn't make his schedule work. Ah. So you're you're bumping him off. All right. You're moving up the list. You're you're now up in my number two slot. Oh, sorry, I don't know. I don't know why I feel like I need I need to play moderator because you're both like two of the oldest people or longest <laughs> longest running <laughs> humans in this sport. Kevin might be. Kevin, you're forty something these days, aren't you? Forty six. Forty six. Okay. Um, but I want to know, like, how who's got more podiums, elite podiums, even at that? 
Because Kevin, you played you played the elite game for a long time, though, didn't you? And you had a, a lot of elite podiums. I I had a moderate amount. I had a very respectable amount. I have fourteen elite podiums um, from two thousand thirteen through the end of two thousand seventeen, and then once they changed the um, the age groups, I I I transitioned right over and saved the age groups. Um, Bracken's definitely had more and Bracken's definitely beat me in every single race we've ever ran, you know? Um, and I, I was in the game for two years before I hit my first elite podium. And then once I hit the first one, they started coming a little bit more regularly. Um, you know, but Bracken's also done it at the big races. He's done it at the, the big stadiums when people, you know, when the top guns have showed up, he's done it at the, you know, the, at, at the NBC races, you know, he's, he's, uh, He's gone out there in races and uh, you know, and, and won and beat some really good guys. I, I I only have one first place elite podium, and that was in the team. Uh, excuse me, that was in the charity race at Killington um, back in like I think like 2014, um, and uh, I had an I had an impressive win that day, but. Um, it was still, I mean, that, that was kind of the only one. And it wasn't, it was impressive, but it still wasn't racing guys like Bracken. Listen, you're being kind, but this episode is not about me. The answer yeah, is. Well, I mean, it just Kevin came has... up. So I'm trying to be, I'm trying to keep it real and just, you know, speak my mind. I appreciate that. So, yeah, I, I would have probably more of the, of the, the pro podiums. But if you count pro and age group together, Kevin dwarfs my number. Don't you have a hundred or something? No, oh, we just lost audio, Kevin. I, th- I think you're on mute or something. We can't hear you. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm just moving my hands around. Let me put the headphones back in. Listen, you're 46. Technology is hard at 46. <laughs> <laughs> I'm impressed you have Bluetooth headphones. Look at that. Were yeah, they I gifted mean... to you by your <laughs> by your nephew or something? No, these were um, last last summer. I hoard myself out to some uh, some company called Soundcore. They paid me five hundred bucks and they gave me like five pairs of headphones to do one podcast. I'm like done. Ain't nothing wrong with I, that. I got no, my pretty good. pair of Soundcore headphones. <laughs> um, yeah. So what what a lot of people like who haven't maybe haven't been around a lot was the the master the masters elite podiums. Right, they started two days before my 40th birthday. So I turned 40 years old two days after they started Masters Elite. They, it was basically the first age group that they had in Spartan racing. So it was only for 40 and above. And I was able to like hit that at my youngest age, right? I had just turned 40. So I, you know, I, I, I was already thinking, I'm like, okay, I got to be real about my career. There's only so much longer that I'm going to be able to go and be able to even snag like an overall elite podium. I'm like, cause every year, like, even though I felt like I was getting better in a lot of ways, there's just more people coming in and the more people volume of great people coming in, even if you're getting better, the, the, the people in between are going to start filling the gap. So like if I was racing Bracken back in like 2013 and he beats me by five minutes and I come in second, you know, it still looks good. But now in between that five minute gap, there's like 10 other guys coming in, filling in slots in between. So now like what was a second place performance is like out of the top 10. So 
what was great about the masters is it kept me kind of motivated to continue to do things. But I'm like, you know what? I'm really just going to focus on beating the other 40 plus guys. And if I hit an elite podium along the way, that's great too. But it was never my motivation anymore. Um, so I started kind of rattling those off. And then in 2018, they saw how well the masters was going and how much popularity there was. So they're like, let's add more age groups across the board. They already experimented with the competitive wave that was unofficiated and people are really getting hyped about that. So they added, uh, they removed the masters and they included six age groups. Um, so I'm like, well, I'm 43 years old now. Um, if I keep racing elite, I lose the opportunity to focus on what I had just been focusing on for the last three years. So I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to make the total switch transition over into complete age group, own it. I'm, I, I love it. And I'm like, now I can kind of stay motivated for the rest of my career race into my 60s, 70s if I want to, and always have something to shoot for. Um, and it's been awesome. So the, the numbers are for elite overall podiums, it's, it's 14. After that, it's, I think, the, um, the Masters podiums, I have like something like 90 or like 89 or something like that. And then everything else has been in the age group since uh, 2018. So it's a combined effort. And I think the most thing I'm proud of that is, is just being able to maintain a certain level of fitness, a certain level of uh, competitive win rate and podium rate within my own demographic, which I'm very proud of. And, uh, and then give respect to the guys that are still continuing to have to run, like run elite that are at that older age. Like, I mean, Hobie was doing it for a while. Uh, Novakovic had been doing it for a little bit, but kind of, you know, he kind of like, you know, went in his own direction with cross country skiing uh ryan woods is still doing it and uh there's a, a few people coming up kirk you're gonna be one of those guys too i'm 38 you're 38 i am and what you're doing right now is spectacular i mean you're probably racing better than you ever had in your life mm, i wouldn't say that but uh maybe we'll say that in about a week let's see we'll wait on that result i uh i want to know something about you kevin i don't know your background in sport I don't know. I know Kevin Donahue from like Spartan race on like when I first got into the sport, you start looking, you start following these Spartan like influencers and athletes. And you were one of the first guys I found and followed because you had like a history there. But like, I don't know anything beyond or previous to that. Do you bracket? Maybe you guys go further back, but I don't know your like origin of sport where you grew up, all that. Well, the, I guess a little background for the the listeners. Kevin was on my list of maybe, I don't know, four guys. It was Hobie, Ryan Kent, Brian Gowiski, and Kevin are probably the four guys I've roomed with the most historically. And it was mm-hmm. Ho- Hobie early on the most. And then it moved into Gowiski and Donahue. And then Gowiski, Donahue, and Kent as Kent came onto the scene. So, Kevin was probably like historically he's top two probably people I've spent time with on road trips of races and a couple of times at his house. And so we've, we've had all these chats. I've, I feel like I know half of the Kevin Donahue origin story. So I'm excited to get the earlier. I don't know if I have the super early because we, we, we've had our in-depth talks. We've had our, our time, but, but Kirk, this is kind of going to be your, your deflowering here. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'll, 
I'll try to keep it brief. Um, no, 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 no. We we do the long. This is the weekend long run episode, Kevin. Will you start? You take us back to your origin of you, and you work up. You've got what hour and a half to get us there. Yeah. So growing up, I was uh, I was a team sport guy. Um, a lot like a lot like Bracken was, right? I was uh, I was baseball, football. Um, I wasn't basketball. Um, you know, I was uh, always kind of a shorter guy, so basketball wasn't a thing for me. But if Muggsy Bogues could do it, you could do it. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't grow up with the, with the goal of being a basketball player. That's for sure. I, I wanted to be a baseball player. You know, uh, my my goal, my my dream growing up. You know, as a little kid was. You know, I wanted to play for the Yankees or the Mets, right? And um, once I got to high school, I was like, you know what? I loved playing a game called Kill the Guy when I was in parochial school. Kill the Guy was just a game we made up on the schoolyard where there was one football and one person would pick it up. And everybody else on the playground would try to kill that guy. Like, so you would just run around with it, trying to dodge 15 to 20 people until they finally took you down. And then when they took you down, everybody would pile on on top of you. Um, You'd laugh, you'd have fun, they'd get up. Hopefully nobody had a broken bone. And then whoever had the balls to pick up the ball again would go. We had a different name for that. And neither neither name is appropriate anymore. What so? You, one of them was tackle the bum, right? The other one, the first word was smear. Correct, <laughs> and th- that just that didn't age well. No, 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 that that would definitely not fly today. Kill the guy is much more much more direct, and I, I say yeah. indicative of what was happening. Yeah, so you, you could fill in the blanks on that one. We either called the kill the guy or kill the carrier, right? So I I just loved being able to dodge everybody, let people bounce off me, take the hits, um, and then just make people, like, work hard you know, to take me down. So when I got to high school, I, I had never played football before, and I'm like, you know what? Like, why don't I just do this as something to do before baseball season starts? And um, so I, I played freshman football. And then all of a sudden, the second the pads came on and I learned what was going on, um, I mean, when I first got there, I didn't know how to put my jock strap on right. I couldn't put the jock strap on. I didn't know what the pads were for. I didn't know anything. You know, that first, this isn't something we've discussed yet, but I don't think jock straps are used anymore in the traditional sense. They all have compression shorts with some sort of, you know, cup, cup holder in there at this point. But it was a rite of passage for years where a young man, a boy, would get a jock strap and have no idea where your legs were supposed to go. And you'd sit there in front of the bathroom mirror trying to figure out what way is this appropriate so that I can wear it correctly in the locker room. Yeah, and and thankfully enough, the coach remembered that and made sure at the end of the year speech at our big awards dinner that he included that tidbit in front of all my friends and family and everybody was there that I didn't know how to put my jock strap on right. That's good. So um, needless to say, like that first year changed my life because um, I went out and in my first year, I won the MVP. And for me, that was huge. I'd come out of a parochial school where they had no sports. The only game I played was kill the guy. And, uh, you know, Little League baseball, little Little League soccer here and there. Um, my family didn't have hardly any money, so they couldn't afford to put me in a sport like football. And after a while, they couldn't even afford to put me in soccer or Little League anymore. They just 
didn't have the money. Um, so I, I grew up playing all my sports in the woods, you know, stickball, um, kickball, and then just making up games in the woods, riding my bike, running through trails, swimming in streams. You know, you see where I'm going with this. So um, I wound up having like actually a pretty significant high school football career. Um, and it turned out I went from being like a running back where I morphed into like a running back return man slash like nose guard. And I actually made Classic all the pairing. <laughs> yeah, I, it's funny because I made all the all star teams as a as a defensive lineman. I was I was five foot four, weighed under one hundred fifty pounds, but I had a knack of being able to work guys that were like you know six foot three, two hundred seventy, two hundred eighty pounds, um, get leverage, use technique, and from that it graduated into a, a college career. So I wound up playing college football at a Division two school in North Dakota called Minot State. That's not far for me. I mean, really, in Minnesota. No, uh, a lot of guys I played with were from Minnesota. Isn't that like in the middle of nowhere? You're basically on a small island of humans in a like sea of grass. It's northwest North Dakota, and that's all it was. You know, it was a, a complete culture shock when I moved out there. The first time I saw the place, because you remember, this is pre-internet, right? This is 1995, so like there was kind of an internet, but. Nobody had like personal computers at that point and nobody like was surfing the web. Like I found this in a, in a catalog. So the first time I saw it was when the plane landed. I'm like, what the fuck did I do? Because I just never seen anything so flat. And, uh, you know, assistant coach picks me up, grabs my bag, throws in the back of a pickup. We go down to the stadium and that's the first time I ever saw my peers that had been taking steroids. And these guys are just juiced out of their minds. The necks are out to here, the acne everywhere. These dudes are all like 6'3", 260, yeah, sauced out of their gourds. What, what did their calves the look like? That's what I want to know. What did their calves look like, Kevin? <laughs> most of, I got to admit, most of them had skinny calves. That's but these thought. guys are still athletes. You know, these were, these were uh, guys that recruited out of like northern Canada or, like, or, or up north in Canada. A lot of guys out of California, a lot of guys out of Minnesota. who's good football players. Um, so I won the job actually as a, as a kick returner and as a punt returner in my first year out there. Um, they wouldn't let me try out in the D-line. They're kind of traditional in that way. They're like, no, 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 you're too small. And I'm like, fuck that. I'll beat any guy you have on the line. I'm like, let me try out. I used to try to sneak into D-line drills. They would throw me out. So I won, I won the job as a kick returner. Started every game on special teams doing that. But then after a year, I was like, you know what? I just don't see myself like staying in North Dakota. Um, the, the college program that I started wanting to do was actually communications. I wanted to do radio and TV. They didn't have it. And I'm like, even if they did, how am I going to get a job in radio and TV coming out of North Dakota? I'm like, I need to get back to New York, like, I, the, like the mecca of media. So I came back to New York, tried doing that. Didn't really like it that much. And now I wasn't playing sports. I'm trying to pick up 5Ks, 10Ks here and there. Do, started doing some triathlons. Um, and then the, the kind of the East Coast part of the United States I was living in, they started a, a new semi-professional football league. It's called the EFL. And my town landed like a franchise. So I, I tried out, and then I got to play all the positions I love playing. You know, I started at nose guard. They would put me in at defensive end. Um, pure pass rushing situations. I would return kicks. I would return punts. 
I play slot receiver. I play running back. And sometimes I held for extra points and kickoffs. Like, I, excuse me, extra points and field goals. Um, I ran down to all the special teams. I had an absolute blast. And they let me play against guys that were six foot seven, 330 pounds. And I was able to lock up against them and have a good career. Wound up being like the all time sack leader on the team. And it was a phenomenal experience. So I wound up playing for them in another team uh, up until I was about 26, 27 years old. And at that point, I was just like, you know what? The NFL isn't exactly banging down the door for a five foot five, 160 pound like defensive end. I, I don't have any injuries right now. I had no concussion problems, everything, you know, no ACLs, nothing. I'm like, I think it's time to get out. So I got out of it. And I started looking for new things to do and I had a hard time to find them. So I got into ultra marathons probably like, um, in 2009, I'd just been dabbling in five K's, but I just loved adventure. And then all of a sudden I'm at a gas station and a guy, a cop that I knew in town throws me a t-shirt and like this Spartan helmet on it. And I was like, what's that? He's like, Oh, it's some race that they're doing down the road. Um, in tuxedo, which was known as the tri-state sprint. And he's like, you should do this. And I'm like, you know what? Like, God, growing up, I loved running in the woods. I loved jumping through streams. Like I loved like overall athleticism. You know, I'd, I'd been a power lifter. So I'd, I'd won like a national deadlift competition. I'd won a state bench press competition. I'm like, I love doing things like monkey bars. I'm like, this look, I'm like, and I'd already had this, you know, a very minor success doing ultra marathons. I, I say minor success was, like I didn't die. Like I was able to survive them, you know, like, and, and finish them. And for me, that was like, I was really happy to be able to do that. So I'm like, you know what? This seems like the perfect combination of everything I love doing. Then I go to my first Spartan race and Joe descent is there. I have no idea who he is. And he introduces this guy named Hobie call. And he puts a $20,000 bounty on his head and says, anybody could beat this guy. I will cut you a check right now for $20,000. I want to know that story actually quick. Sorry, I already, I always heard this $20,000 check bounty thing. This is something like Joe would announce over the microphone at the start line. Like, yeah. they'd point it at Hobie and be like, if anybody can beat him, 20 grand? Yeah. I mean, Hobie, Hobie came up. He would say, if you could beat this guy, and then Hobie would do his ceremonial walk to the start line. And because this was really early on, Spartan had only been. They had done three races in 2010. They were called the Spartan Race Experience. It wasn't even called Spartan Race. And it looked like it had had the, you know, it was just a bunch of guys like Mike Morris out there with a fucking hammer and, you know, a little, a little banner for a finish line and a start line that first year. And then the second year, they actually put some money into it. And Hobie had gone out at that point, and there was maybe like six or seven races, I, I believe. I could be wrong on that. And by the time they got to Tuxedo in that June, and Hobie had come out and he had won every one. I mean, won every single one going away. And and I think it's important to note that they, he had a bet with Joe that if he won every race that year plus death race, he got fifty or a hundred thousand dollars. Right? It was a hundred thousand dollars. So Joe was putting up a twenty thousand dollar bet against that bet. So because right. if if no one beats him, it builds the, the 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 mystique and the aura up. But if someone beats him, then he doesn't have to potentially give out a hundred thousand. So yeah, that twenty thousand dollar headhunting bet it it stood. Yeah, and he did that out of necessity because he's like, I don't want like this guy looked like he was well on his way to winning a hundred thousand dollars. So 
I mean, Hobie ran that race. He beat me by eight minutes. He only beat me by eight minutes because he dicked around in the last like half mile and literally just like danced around the course, shaking hands, kissing babies, playing in the water, you know, jostling around with the, with the, the, um, with the Q-tip guys at the end at that time, we'd kick your ass at the finish line, just had a blast. And, um, so from that moment, I came in fourth in that race, loved everything about it. And I said, this is it. I'm like, I'm signing up for more of these and I'm going to continue to do it. And then it just grew, you know, and then you start meeting guys like the following year in 2012, I started meeting guys like, like Bracken and a, a regular crew people came out. And the thing that really drew it to me was the camaraderie. Here's people that love things that I love doing that I could see on a regular basis. It's competitive and involves all these other aspects of athleticism that work perfectly for a, for a guy like me and, and, and guys like you, where we're just not like straight up runners. You, you pride yourself on being an overall well-rounded athlete. And now I get to go have adventures all over the country while I'm in my mid thirties and be part of a sport that looks like it's growing into something bigger. It was exciting. It was fun. It filled my heart up with like a ton of joy and excitement and it still does to this day. And that's kind of where it all began. Well, Bracken, you keep muting yourself. Yeah, there's some, they're mowing City Hall behind me right now. And someone's trying to mow the median and they just keep hitting mm-hmm. the curb with the blade. And just, so <laughs> I keep muting because someone out there is just tearing up their blades. But that was a, it was a unique feeling in that sport. So, I mean, Kevin and I were there in 2011 and we're here in 2021. We felt all the atmosphere. That first year or two was a different atmosphere. I'm not saying it was better because there have been some higher moments and bigger atmospheres, but it was a different atmosphere. It's one of those times where on one hand, you could name everyone in the world who was on your level and you saw them every race. And so it was like this traveling caravan of people who all... Like we're going towards the same thing. But again, there are only like five or six of us. And so it was just a different feeling. You knew you were part of something really raw and grassroots back then. And it had a way of snatching you up. I'll throw it to you, Kirk. Oh, I was, I was, I was waiting for a response. Um, well, I actually had a question. I was waiting to, to punch it in there. But I, I guess I don't understand really why a football player becomes interested in ultra marathons to even start with. I wanted to like understand your origin of running because uh, that doesn't really line up with your background. Being like, I'm doing 5Ks, I'm doing 10Ks, and then suddenly ultras appeal to you. Why did that happen, or how did that happen? I didn't have the uh, I didn't have the opportunity, um, and I didn't. I knew that football wasn't something that could be a long term thing. You know, I was like. I kind of had to give it up at some time, but I still wanted that adventure in my life. Um, one of the things I left out was I was a big skier as well. I used to do a lot of like very extreme skiing. And now I just like enjoy skiing for the excitement and the fun and hitting bumps and some jumps, but nothing too crazy anymore. Um, mm. And I just wanted an adventure. I wanted to be able to go out and travel and maybe see some people I know that were doing something different. And doing an ultra marathon appealed to me. Because of the same reason why, like, why would a football player, you know, who's built like a fire plug want to go do something like that? Because it was a challenge. It wasn't until um, later on, I I was probably 38 years old. I think this was 2013, where I was sponsored by a human performance company. And Dr. Harry Pino 
if you ever want to look this guy up, he's uh, he's pretty incredible. He had done up at that point 15,000 BO2 max tests, including guys like Lance Armstrong, Olympians, uh, world-class cyclists, world-class marathoners. And they were, you know, they were helping me with like kind of like my biohacking um, going in because they wanted to hop on the obstacle course racing scene because like Bracken said, it was this grassroots sport that all of a sudden started to explode and a lot of people wanted to get in on it. So this guy tested me in 2013 and I thought I was going to test out like, you know, like our ex-football player or whatever. If I could get over a 60, I felt like that was going to be really respectable, you know, and it is. And he tested me and this guy pushed me to the limit on the test. And he shocked me when he told me, he's like, listen, he's like, your, your test came out of 78.2. Oh, wow. I was like, is that thing broke? He's like, no, man, I've done this. I've done 15,000 tests. He's like, I've tested some top of you. He's like, yours came out of 78.2. He's like, when I tested Lance Armstrong, that came out of the 82. I was like, well, why aren't I running faster times? He's like, because you're five foot four and a half, five foot four and three quarters. And he's like, you weigh like 155, 160 pounds and you have incredibly short legs. He's like, I'm five, like, like I said, I'm just shy of five, five, but I have a really long neck and a long torso. So if my torso and my neck were in, were more in, like in line with what my, my leg length is, I would probably be like five, two. So my, my hip to knee uh, length, like my femur is incredibly short for an already short, short person. So I have a tremendously fast turnover, but I'm doing it on shorter legs and I'm doing it carrying a lot of skeletal muscle and some large bones. So for I've been able to run some sub 17 minute 5Ks, but for me, that's really, really good. So it didn't, it didn't jive with me at first with the number and the performance. I was like, what am I doing wrong? And he's like, no, these are the reasons where you're at. If we drop you down to like maybe 135 pounds, you'd be able to run some sub 15 5Ks. I was like, fuck hell, I'm going down a sub, you know, like 135 pounds. I'm like, I'll look like Skeletor. You know, I'll, I'll sacrifice cardiac tissue if I do that. I'm like, I'm risking major health problems if I do that. I'm like, dude, I naturally live at between like 148 pounds and 160 pounds. That's where I'm going to stay. And that's what makes me most happy and feels good because I like to do a lot of other sports. I'm like, I don't want to break and hurt myself later on just so I could start running like great track times. I'm like, it's not going to happen. It takes so many. That's an interesting conversation about VO2 max and performance. It takes so many like metrics and proper biomechanics and then body type to not only like you have to have the good VO2 max, but then you have to have like the stature and the uh, the body that can then use it. Right. Like you see some of the highest VO2 max ever recorded are like on like rowers, let's say, but the Olympic rower is 180 pound 510 guy. If he wanted to be a runner, even if he has a VO2 max of 80, he's never going to be a great runner because, yes, his engine is huge, but he's carrying too much weight and probably not efficient when he does it. So it's an interesting conversation about VO2 max and that translating to like running quickly. Another guy that um, you look at and you wonder why he's so amazing. Like, look at look at Ryan Atkins, right? I'm, I'm like, I'm sure he has like a tremendous VO2 max. He also has a very big like chest cavity. Like, so you're looking at, like, if you were to like, take an x-ray of, like, Ryan Atkins, like, I would imagine just the size of his lungs are huge. 
Then on top of that, for a guy who's about like 5'10", right? Bracken, Atkins about maybe 5'10", right? Max, yeah. 5'9 and a right? half, 5'10". He has incredibly long legs. You know, mm-hmm. so he's so his legs, like from his hip height is very high. So for, uh, I mean, so if you wonder why a guy like that is just so head and shoulders above everybody else, there's a lot of biomechanical things if you just look at him, like huge chest cavity, like decent height, like he's, it looks like he's got the perfect ratio of muscularity um, to height and weight. And plus he's incredibly long legs that are muscular at the same time, but not too muscular. It's like somebody created him in a lab. Yeah. VO2 max is a, it's almost like a red herring for a lot of people. It's fool's gold to some. Mm-hmm. It's a great metric if you're already great. And it it's it's like it tells you the size of your engine or what it could be. But like if you drop a Corvette engine in a Jeep Wrangler and you drop it in a Miata, you're gonna get two different responses. You know? And that Jeep Wrangler is never going to hit two hundred miles per hour and it's never gonna be able to corner and it's never gonna be fuel efficient. But the Miata's just gonna fly with that thing. So it's it's fool's gold for a lot of people. And for others, it's a good carrot dangling to say, I think I could get more out of myself. Okay, this is fun. Like you started the conversation <laughs> with the Camaro and then you, you really love your cars. But the, no, this is a cool one. So let's say for each one of us, take our engine. What would, our, what would we be if we were a car or a vehicle? If you took our engines and put it in that vehicle, which one of us would we be? Kirk, you go first. Can't just put that on me like that. Let's think here. Well, listen, I don't like cars because I got to be off the ground. Anybody who drives a car, I don't know how you do it. I got to get up a few feet. So first of all, I'm some sort of SUV or truck. Um, and I'm going to go with the Tacoma, Toyota Tacoma. I, I just got a Tacoma. I, I own one as well. They're fantastic. But it can it can still tow and haul some heavy shit. Pretty fuel economy, uh, economic over long distances and not flashy, but gets the job done, brother. That's why I'm going to be a Tacoma. I, dude, I love the choice because I, I'm a proud owner. What do you? What right, you, wait, 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 hold on, hold on. I'm not satisfied yet. You got? You get a new Tacoma? 2019. Mine's an 18. When I okay. just got it. What color did you go with? This is a big. It's a hard decision for me. Red. You went red. I went like sandstone, but I really liked the cement. The cement gray, but all right. I'm red. gonna be honest. It was. It was more of a. It was more of like a. I needed to get a crew cab, four door. It had to be four wheel drive, had to be a V6, and it had to be between you know 2016 and up, at at the price that at the price point I had, and four of them showed up on the list of cars I could get. Three of them were red, and I think one of them was green, but the green was more money. So I, it was more I could have gone with any color, but it just happened to be red, which I was happy with. If it was a sand color one, I would have been happy with that too. Listen, you guys are already off base. He, uh, asked, he asked about our frame and our engine, not about our personality and our lifestyle. Dude, we started talking <laughs> about tacos and it, it just it no, 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 I'm not saying off track. I'm saying your answer, Kirk, was off base. He said, if you took your engine and your frame, what kind of car are you? Fair enough. Okay, take us back, Bracken. Put us back on track. Okay, but don't you think I answered that? Hold up. Did I answer no. that accurately? No, you, you, you said, I got to be off the ground. I'm rugged. I can haul stuff. No, I didn't say rugged. Don't put words in my mouth. 1500 meter runner. That is not a Tacoma. You have more. I was in no way, shape or form is a Tacoma considered having wheels. Okay. 
<laughs> no, it's just not. If you grew up a wrestler, you might be able to be a Tacoma. You are identifying your personality, not your athletic skill set. So I do not accept you as a Tacoma. I'm sorry. Lifestyle, sure. But that would be like me saying, I'm a minivan. <laughs> and you are. I don't accept it. <laughs> Let's try again. Listen, uh, first of all, I was the, I'm like the, the not a car guy. I don't give a shit about vehicles as long as it looks and feels cool and it gets me places and I can haul stuff with it. So maybe I'm the wrong guy to ask then. But all I know is like, I don't feel like I'm a sports car, right? Because the Ferrari and the Camaro, those are like, those are a little quicker than I am, right? And they're also mm-hmm. a little dainty. So you tell me, Bracken, what kind of car am I? Listen, I will never tell a man what kind of car he is. I will tell him what kind of car he's not. And you're <laughs> on the weekends, you're a Tacoma. But on the race course, you got a little more get up and go than that, Kirk. And I don't accept it. I don't even know what to say. Back and you go. <laughs> I defer to Kevin. <laughs> I, I'd say um, I'd say a dune buggy. I like right? that. It likes it. It likes to jump shit. It's it could turn corners really fast. It's really agile. Could bounce back and forth. Could really take a beating over a long period of time. You could kind of put it in any terrain. Um, it's it's not going to be super fast, but it's going to be fast and, and be able to uh, corner things and take a good beat and kind of go anywhere. So I'll take a doom buggy. It's a good answer. It's not bad, Bracken. Since you're so critical, come on now. What well, are I you, can Bracken? be critical of others. If you know anything about people who are critical of others, it means they have no idea about themselves. Is that what that means? What would the car be that's very good for like three or four minutes and then just runs out of gas and then in its later years starts breaking down? (laughs) Whatever that is, apparently that's what I am. A Fiat. I'd like to say I'm like a Range Rover. I can do a bit of it all with a bit of class and I just don't think I can commit to actually being that. (laughs) Well, I, I owned a Range Rover, and that is exactly what happened. After about 150,000 miles, that fucking thing was terrible. All right, Range Rover. I'm a Range Rover. <laughs> nah, you're better than that. The only answer that really was any good was Kevin's. Kevin had already known his answer, I think. I think Kevin set himself up to, to make the right play there. Why would yeah. not? That's fair. <laughs> I would say I am the Skecher Razors 3. I don't know if I can go with a car, but a shoe, I'm the Skecher Razor 3. You're not going to get a marathon out of me, but I'll be pretty decent at any other speed in between. How about that? Well, that's a, that's an overall good question regardless for the car for your next guest. But if you want to start a fight, Bracken's already said it. Like He's like, he's not picking what another man's car is, but he isn't. So I think we should be able to, maybe next time we pick what the other person's car is. That and see if that good. makes him angry or makes him happy. I well, think I it'll make him you. Happy. I said Corvette engine and a Jeep Wrangler. But you don't have the the. I would think the Jeep Wrangler because it turns over a lot would have a lot of an- ankle problems. No, I'm saying you, know? you. I don't. I don't have that, but I don't have ankle problems. I don't think a Jeep Wrangler turns over that much. If you know how to drive it. This conversation. You're talking to a guy. Listen, you're talking to the guy that flipped his Nissan Xterra at the start line of the 2012 Ultra Beast. Yeah, I walked up to the to start my warm up, and there's a car on its side or on its roof or whatever, and there's people standing around, standing on top of it, and it turns out it was Kevin Donahue. Yeah, that was my handiwork. He tried parking in a drainage ditch. <laughs> <laughs> I want to change this. Hold on, were you okay? Hold on. The proudest part of that moment, though, was actually just saying, you know what? 
leave it upside down in the ditch. The race is more important. Well, it's not going anywhere. <laughs> it had to have been the slowest flip over in the history of, of cars overturning. It was like Tiger Woods golf ball that once at the Masters, it had this Nike swoosh and just went. Was that a rental? No, that was mine. Okay, thank God. I never get the insurance on those rentals because it's a scam. Correct me if I'm wrong. You just went to park it in a, in the grass at the at the venue, and you parked a little too close to the edge, and it just slowly toppled. Is that right? I was pulling up slowly to talk to the security guard to ask him if it was okay if we could bring our stuff up further to drop our gear bins in the uh, in the ultra transition area, and the guy, you know, walked up and. I just started talking to him and the side of the ditch gave out. It just collapsed under the weight of the car. Mm. I got too close. I didn't even know it was there. And his, the front tire went in and then it just rotated over on an angle and flipped all the way upside down. Sounds terrible. That's quite a way to start an ultra race. And that was the lost tribe year, right? Was that the year that everyone went off course and couldn't exactly. finish? I mean, the last thing you want to do before a long race is get your adrenaline shot through the roof right beforehand. And that did not do us any services. No. That was a slow starting race. It took us a while to find our groove. Kevin, we um we do this thing only once in a while. We should do it more called uh, Confession confession Corner, Confessional Corner, which uh, you've raced hundreds of times now. Uh, so is it in on 200? 200. My goodness. I just counted my medals the other day. I just moved and hung them on the wall, and I'm at 28 Spartan races, which is not a lot when you think about it because um, I don't race that much. But anyways, my point yeah, being – For what it's worth, every time you've raced, they have been savage efforts. Yeah. You know, this isn't going out and doing like an open course where like you're you're taking three to four minutes to do your burpees and, you know, you're taking two, three – two or three spear throws to have some fun and, you know, taking pictures on course, every single one of your efforts is an all out, like, you know, red line, complete full out effort that at the end of the day, you're putting yourself in serious harm's way. So those 28 efforts are, are significant. Don't tell me that you're not going out and, you know, leaving it out on the line when you tow the start line either though. I have, but it's been over 10 years. Okay, well, I don't want to distract from my question. My question is, we know you've cheated at some point on the course because everybody has, whether they know they have or they haven't. And, and we should preface this. We did this with Glenn. Glenn Race. And yeah. someone else. And I admitted my my indiscretions on course that I've never announced to anyone. Uh, they're almost always accidental, but you get away with cheating something on accident. Kirk, I think, cut the course one time accidentally. Uh, Glenn cheated something like, so, so, so we've done this before. It's not like we have inside information that we're trying to but, scoop you on. No, Glenn race, cut the course, got off course, found the course in Palmerton in a U.S. national series race and still just kept running. Nobody told him what to do across the finish line, cast a check. Like that's a pretty solid thing <laughs> to confess, right? So, so we've all done things. You've had 200 races, Kevin. Can you think of a few things where maybe you skirted the moral lines out there on race course you'd like to get off your chest? Man, I, I think that I have done this one multiple times, and it's definitely one of the things that was probably like not the spirit of the not the spirit of the course. 
Um, but it was definitely within the boundaries of the course. And that comes down to those muddy trenches, right? The, um, a lot of times it's the, um, rolling mud, rolling mud, or a lot of like the shitty streams that we got to run through when they put the tape up on the side of the, on the berm, right. Or the side of the rolling mud. And you find like the driest, highest spot within the tape that you could run on. And then some of those times the tape goes down, right? So then you're running a kind of like where it may or may not be, but there's no definitive line. So the probably the best moral way to do it is to go right through the middle of the trench. But you're like, you know what? Like I also like have like an kind of an un a boundary that isn't necessarily defined why I'm going to hamstring myself when the boundary isn't necessarily defined or the rule isn't defined. I'm going to do what's best for me. So uh, this has happened in many races where like, Hey, if there's that, if that tape is put up someplace and there's a dry place for me to go, I'm going that dry place. You know, um, it was never called like the rolling mud or the, or the, or run through the stream. It was called stay within the lines. You know, so I would try to stay to the outside. So I remember a few years ago, um, there was controversy about Ryan Kent, you know, skirting the mud pit. And I defended him. I was like, listen, it was called the rolling mud, not through the run through the water. And the boundaries of that course were defined right there. There's the tape. He stayed within the tape. You know, everybody chose to go through the water. Well, that's their choice. He followed the rule that he thought it was. So Maybe it's not like cheating the course, but f- some people find that morally objectable. Um, I find that just as one of those things is like, hey, you're taking advantage of whatever the rule is and making it work for you. And I think that's part of any sport is finding, you know, how far you can push the envelope without really crossing over the line. We see it in football, we see it in baseball, we see it in pass. It's more gamesmanship than I would call it cheating. You've never whiffed a bell, nobody's around, kept running. You never went off course accidentally and got back on course where suited you, not retract your steps and went back on course where you went off course. That's the best you got after 200 races. That's that's the best I could give you. I think a couple times I had goose fall out of my pocket and I didn't go back to pick up my trash. Mm. That's actually a big one. That's actually a big one. If you know it's falling out, you're supposed to go back and pick up your trash. You're not supposed to leave it out there. That's that's grounds for disqualification. And that that has happened a couple of times too. Okay. I I appreciate the fact that you're a pretty moral racer, but I had another one come to mind for me, Kirk. Today, this morning, I had a 7 a.m. meeting with an athlete. Okay. And we were talking about some some races, and I realized I had forgotten one when I did my last confessional here. In the Seattle U.S. National Series race on NBC, probably either 2015 or 16, we all had a large group together going over Z-Walls, and Hobie whiffed the bell. Katie, you're good. You can come down and do whatever you want. Okay, I'll put those in like a bit or something like that. That's that lake life. You got got neighbors coming by. I had a woman the other day, Bracken. Sorry about that, Bracken. I will edit it. I'm sitting here at my computer. Maybe we won't edit it. I'm sitting here at my computer doing work, and this woman comes up, lays a beach towel out in my backyard right next to the lake, little kid with floaties. She just decided to park it in my yard and start swimming in my lake off of my dock. And I go out there. I'm like, are you at the wrong place? 
well, I don't understand what you're doing here. This is my house. And she's like, oh, it was just hot out. And I just felt like we needed to cool off. The woman parked on the street out in front of my house, snuck between my garage and my house, thinking nobody was home on a weekday. Joke's on her. I worked from home. And she was swimming off my damn dock. That's bizarre, isn't it? Bizarre. How far would she have taken it? Would she have been in the fridge next? Well, the door was, I guess the door wasn't locked because I was home, but maybe. It just was weird, man. It was like weird. That's, weird that's ballsy. Oh, that's ballsy. I have two docks. I have the regular dock and I have a floating dock. And uh, every now and then I'll, I'll come home and there's like like a picnic going on out there. People have chairs pulled up. So, uh, you know, I got to politely go to the end of my dock and, you know, kind of yell out to the floater. Be like, how you doing? Like, hey, listen, um, enjoy the rest of your lunch. Enjoy your day. But just know that 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 is private property, um, and mm. uh, you, you just can't just like camp out there all the time. So, but enjoy yourself for now. But for next time, that's different. Somebody literally crossed, like went through your house. Lake life is hard. It's, it's so hard. Kraken, <laughs> continue your uh, your story about, about Hobie. Anyways, Hobie with the bell, and we're all out of sorts here. And so we're all trying to make moves. And I did my leap from the corner to ring the bell on the Z-Wall. And I had my foot, for the first time ever, my feet came down early. Earlier than I thought. And my hand hit and my feet hit. And I could not call it. I had no clue. It was it was like a bang-bang play. There was a very good chance that my feet touched at the same time as the bell or a little before or a little after, and I couldn't call it. And I looked over at the volunteer to like get his, I was going to go with whatever he said, and he wasn't watching me. And I just took off and ran. What do you, what does your gut tell you, Bracken? If you had, if you had to lay in this grave, let's confess for real. Do you believe your foot hit the ground first? I truly don't know. I, it was as close to simultaneous as you can call. And I don't know what that is in our sport. I think that video replay would have clarified it. But if I think if 100 people watched it, I bet 60 would have said do burpees. Well, if this was baseball and the ball gets to the base, hits the glove at the same time the runner's bag hits the foot, a tie goes to the runner. So if you feel confident enough that there was enough, there was enough of a tie... If, if you feel confident that there was a good enough chance that was a tie, then give yourself the benefit of the doubt. I did that day. I gave myself the benefit of the doubt. But is that, I don't know. I, ju- I just remembered it the other day because in the air, I realized, oh, no. And I kind of like picked my foot up a little higher and I couldn't call it. I, it, was, it was so close that I had to turn and I just stopped and I looked at the guy to get his call on it. And he wasn't, he wasn't paying attention. So I don't know. And now that's what my third infraction Kirk, if I keep finding more, I'm going to be blackballed from the sport. Do you know what my pet peeve is with us elite racers? The one pet peeve that I see. Starting it late? Starting what late? Stepping on the third rung of, of Z-Wall oh. instead of the first? Yes, which is absolutely ridiculous. There needs to be some guidance there. And the same thing goes for Helix. You just, like, jump on that thing wherever you feel like I feel like. Um, but, no, it's the uh, – I always make sure – I thought littering on course – going back to what Kevin said, is not allowed. That is fraction for disqualification. Correct. Now, it's all these replays of Atkins just tossing his water cups in the woods, not close to the garbage cans. And I see people do it, whereas if I do it, I take my time and I follow the rules. And a lot of people just whip that shit off on the woods when it's convenient after they've drank their water. 
we got to do something about that rule right there. Yeah, or or masks. Or masks. <laughs> what are you getting at, Bragging? <laughs> Jacksonville, Kirk. <laughs> Listen, that was an innocent mistake, Bragging. Uh, All right, pot me kettle, I guess. That doesn't bother anybody, the whole cups on the ground when that's a rule The thing? littering on courses gets caught on camera a lot as to starting obstacles late, and it doesn't get called. So I'm not sure. I guess Tell I'm that cheating. to William Swope, though, right, Kevin Donahue? Dude, it, it's a tough one, man, because, you know, I was just at the New England race this weekend and, you know, Spartans low on staff. They are very low on volunteers. You know, they were they were calling emergency contacts to see if they could come in to be volunteers because the list right now is so low. They're they're really diving down at the hole like deep to try to get people to come and volunteer for courses. So there's sometimes there's nobody at the water station anymore. It's just water set up and you go by and you got to fill your own cup. Um, so it's, it's tough, man. Our sports being held together by bubble gum right now. So I think the least of their worries is going to be like, who threw a cup, you know, you know, or when, Mr. Seconds count, when seconds count in, in a very competitive race, I think that does matter. Yeah. If the rules say you must make your, your trash into the trash can and 99 people do it and one person doesn't, Oh, I'm not saying it's not relevant. I'm not saying it's not relevant. I'm just saying like it's a little harder in force at this point now because they're yeah. just there's this lack of manpower. We've also yeah. seen what we've have seen too is a lot more because of that, um, a lot more penalty loops on courses now, which is a direction I think they should go anyway. Mm-hmm. I, Maybe yeah. one set of burpees out there and that's it. Make all the rest penalty loops. Honestly, if you can't enforce burpee form, which we've clearly proven we can't, then it should all be penalties. I mean, I know the burpees are a part of the branding. And it's an important part of what they've built as far as like kind of how the sport is. But, you know, maybe one, maybe just keep it for, you know, that one obstacle that's close to the finish that everybody can see when they're doing their burpees and you can have maximum viewpoint on it. But to your point, it is pretty impossible to correctly do have everybody do a a standard burpee the same way there's just too much going on there false all they have to do is put manpower on it (laughs) if if the crossfit games can have movement standards for complex barbell movements we can have it for a burpee and we all know the standards just that the athletes refuse to do them and we don't have people that can go no rep no rep no rep the only way to enforce movement standards is no repping Mm-hmm. And there obviously are never going to be enough no. workers to no rep people. So at that point, yeah, let's just remove burpees and make it penalty loops and make it nasty penalty loops. Make it a 80 meter barbed wire crawl or a, a, a 200 meter farmer's carry, you know, make it stuff that the punishment fits the crime. You fall off a grip obstacle. You got to do a farmer's carry. You know, you mess things up. You, you mess up a, a similar system that will deplete you and punish you. But yeah, I, th- I think burpees are probably should be relegated to a thing of the past. Bracken loves his punishments. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Stern man. I, uh, I wanted to uh, get to something with you, Kevin. Um, we talked about age a couple of times. You said you're 46. I'm 38. Um, and I got to wonder, I think I've been doing this sport for five years. Um, the conversation of longevity comes up like you've raced 200 times, man. You've been doing this for a decade. You're 46 and yet you're still 
up there on the podiums looking yoked as ever and still performing and competing. And um, I just want to know, like, walk me through, like, is there any thought process or purposefulness to longevity piece for you with all of this? Like still doing what you're doing, keeping a passion for something for a decade is nearly impossible to start with, let alone staying healthy, let alone flying all over that exhausting life of racing every other weekend. Like that wears on a guy. You've done all of that for all of this time. And I don't think I could, at least not to your frequency. So like, how do you stay healthy? How do you stay with it? All that stuff. I kind of want to like go that route if that's cool. The conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I think the first, I think it starts with just having that, um, that intrinsic passion for wanting to do it. Um, and that encompassed a lot of things I talked about before the camaraderie, the, the adventure and the traveling, the seeing the new places, the, the willing, the, the inner will to want to compete and still want to have something in my life that's so ingrained in me and I'm wanting to continue it. Um, I think a lot of it comes down to uh, just unique genetics where I kind of have a body type that is built for durability. Um, not built maybe for the longest, um, the longest races. That's why I stay away from ultras and, and half marathon distance races. Even a lot of the 10 Ks, I kind of, I only maybe do four or five of those a year. Most of the races I do are pretty short. So I try to manage those by doing the shorter races um, and decreasing the volume of the miles. I've also found that the more frequently I race, the better my body feels. Um, so during the season, there's a lot less training. There's a lot less work. There's a lot less trying to ramp up for a certain race. And I just try to continue to do a lot of different races knowing that I'm like, you know what, if I took a month or two off and just worked my ass off for this one big event, I'd probably have a better result, but I'd be sacrificing that continuous movement that I think because I do it all the time, it kind of keeps me from getting a lot of serious injuries. Um, so I, I just think it's a combination of a lot of things. Just, you know, the lifestyle is fun. The passion about it still kind of gets me going. Um, the people around it keep me motivated. Um, and then, uh, just knowing that like, Hey, you know what, one day, you know, there might come a time where I can't do this anymore and I want to do it on my own choice. I don't want to have it happen where I'm like, yeah, you know what? I could, I could race like, I could take a bunch of time off and maybe do this again in a year or, or skip this race, skip this race and skip that race. And then all have all of a sudden have it taken away. And it kind of COVID did that where it, it, it almost kind of re-energized me more to get out and do it more. Cause you never know when it's going to end. So um, it's, I guess it's a combination of a lot of those things. It's not one thing I could uh, put my finger on. That being said, I did have a calf strain earlier this year from nothing race related. It's, went out for a simple run and I got a strain in a zero drop shoe that I hadn't used in a while. And that took about two months to kind of go away. And I hurt my wrist about two years ago and it's been nagging me. So it's been keeping me from doing as many races I like to do. But, um, for the most part, that's kind of been the key. I just think all those things combined. You're one of those people that we tried working together on training. I tried writing some plans for you several years ago and it didn't work and that that's kind of the the nature of things it's i always talk about uh uh not that i would say i was coaching you but that coach athlete relationship is a lot like dating where you can have two people that everyone's friends are like you two would be a match made in heaven and they can be great friends and they can't date and i felt like that was us like 
we found out that you are not a structured weekly training plan guy. We had had this talk, it was in SoCal somewhere, maybe outside Temecula in the car of like, I really would like to improve my running a little bit. Would you maybe write a training plan? And so we tried it. We went down that route and it just, we weren't a fit for that. And luckily we were able to move on. It didn't impact us at all. But I left that thinking, you're one of the people, I have no sense of what their true training philosophy and style is because it doesn't fit in a nice little chart. Like that Tuesday interval, Thursday midweek long run skill section, Saturday hill reps, like that didn't work for your lifestyle. And so to this day, I'm still interested on what you as an athlete training looks like. Yeah, that's um. there's a couple different sides to that. For one, some of the things I learned from you in a very short period of time, and I've never told you this, have become an absolute staple of my training. There was, you're, you're such, see, this is why Bracken is such a good coach is Bracken didn't try to push me into being somebody I wasn't. And that's what a lot of coaches could do. They're so intent on imposing their will on their clients or their athletes that they actually do them a disservice. Bracken gave me some incredible information. I took that information, the, the parts of it that worked best for me, I ran with it. And he gave me the latitude and had the faith in me to say, you know what? This guy kind of knows what he's doing to a a certain degree on his own. I'm just going to let him go. And he never gave me, he never had to, you know, harass me about it. He never had to bother with it. It never affected our personal relationship. He just kind of let me be. And we just kind of went off and did our own thing. But Bracken, you're the one who told me about why long distance running at a very slow pace is better for you. And that is one of the things that has kept me going long and strong for a long time now. Since 2015, I've used that as a philosophy. All my long runs, I I get passed by people all the time and I just let them go. Because why? Because Bracken told me that the best gains I'm going to have for building my engines is to keep my pace slow and keep it long, even if there's some places I got to walk, just to keep the body going. And it'll be less wear and tear in my system. And it's overall the best thing for building my aerobic engine. And then you taught me a couple of things about my anaerobic engine, about certain sprint intervals and certain hill intervals and ways to attack it that I still use to today. So your teachings are like very beneficial in all my training and stuff that I practice every single week. But you also realized I wasn't like because of my lifestyle and and how much I wanted to race. Those necessarily, those plans weren't going to fit in because I was going to be, I was basically going to be sabotaging myself if I tried to do the programs that you were giving me and still race at the volume I was. It had to be either or. I couldn't Mm -hmm. be down the middle. It had to be like, you either race a lot or you're going to do these programs and do it exactly the way Bracken said. And I'm like, if I can't do it the exact way he's laying it out for me, it's going to be counterproductive. So I have to take the, the great bits and pieces that he gave me, take that knowledge and then fit it into my own lifestyle. And you were a master at doing that because you knew how to lay off. And that is a skill and that is a gift that most people do not have. Well, people who need tough love are people who need tough love. You must follow this. That was clearly not you. But my question is, I still don't have a grasp on what you do in training. 
And I'm curious to know the Kevin Donahue, uh, the decade-long successful plan from mid-30s to mid-40s, like that is a big segment of the running population, is that entering middle age runner who wants to race a lot, and it's part of a social scheme for them. I mean, not scheme, but a social construct is racing, and they can't be bound by that every Tuesday is track day and every Saturday is long run or quality long run day. I want I want you to talk me through how you manage your training. A, a lot of it goes by by feel, how I'm feeling. You know, um, I try to be as active as possible. I try to make sure that I'm getting my hill work in. Sometimes those hill days, like I want to get out there and like I got a plan. I'm going to do 4,000 feet of vert today. And after 500, I feel like dog shit. And I said, you know what? 500 is going to be enough today. Back off it. And then maybe there's certain days where I want to go for a short run and all of a sudden it turns into 10. You know, body felt great that day. I allowed it to do that. You know, um, because of my body type, if I hit the weights really hard, I explode. I get really big, really fast. So I have to manage, you know, my weightlifting um, and make sure that I'm getting, like, you know, a couple strength days in, but not overdoing it making sure I get those high intensity interval days in, um, but not doing it too much as a 40 year old athlete. I have to make sure that I don't hurt myself and overdo it. So a lot of times is once I get to a point where I feel like my body's gotten a lot of work in that day, I just let it heal. But I'm always trying to stay active. I'm always trying to do something. Every day has to be some form of running. Every day has to be some form of yoga, or mobility work. Every day has to be some form of resistance training. And it doesn't have to be a scheduled thing. Just have to make sure you're fitting it in for whatever you feel your your body's giving you that day. And I know that's a very kind of, it's very cloudy. It is, uh, it's not something you, you could put in a box. It's certainly not something I'd say somebody, hey, go do this yourself. Um, what I could just tell people is, do a lot of the things that you're supposed to be doing, you know, especially after you're 40, and just make sure you're constantly staying active. Like, don't stop. The times I've felt the worst was actually during COVID where I didn't have enough to do and where I was kind of sitting around too much. My body felt complete crap. And I'm like, I need to be working on a lot of different things just to keep kind of like the wheels oiled. Um, so I, I would just say constant movements in lots of different disciplines and listening to your body. If it's, if it's hurting that day, don't push through it. Just let it go. Find some other form of exercise you could do that day that works for you. But always try to keep pushing when you can. And when you can, go out and have those hard days. So you train intuitively and you listen to your body. Yes, sir. And you use your races as your biggest quality skill work days? Correct. Okay. With the, with the, as far as the skill work goes, yes. Um, but the, you know, there's times I love hopping into a rock climbing gym or a Ninja Warrior gym, and I just go until I drop. You know, and that's just because it's just fun. And a lot of it, it was like you got to keep the fun injected in it. If it comes too much work and too much just planning, yeah, you know, you're gonna get bored with it, just like anything else. It's like being on a diet. If you're not having fun with your food, sometimes you're gonna fall off the wagon. You know, and same thing with your exercise. You got to make sure that you're injecting that fun in there as well. You taught me a lot about that, Kirk, not to hijack this too far on this thread, but 
it's funny, neither of us have talked to each other about what we took out of that brief period of time together, but you challenged a lot of my my feelings on how to progress as an athlete because I was so tied into workouts must be sequential and progressive in nature because scientifically that is best. But you were one of the first people to start challenging me on the idea of if I have the 100% best training plan and I do not enjoy it and I do it with 80% or 50% passion and consistency, I will be worse than if I take maybe the 60% best training plan and believe in it and do it every single day. And that was that kind of that turning point. What would that have been? 2015, 2016, somewhere in there? That's when I really started to break away from the things I knew to be true as a college track runner and a high school running coach and as the things I was learning to also be true as a multi-sport, multifaceted coach. So you, you made me look at training plans that didn't have to fit a specific box. You kicking it off to me again, Kevin? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think there's something to say about that, Bracken. Uh, I think there is some merit to like, if you're not happy with your training, even though it's scientifically the right training to do, then you're not going to get the results you want. I, I did have a specific question along the training front, as far as like the frequent racer, like the one who races every weekend or every other weekend, because you've gone through bouts where you've, I'm sure, raced two, three, four weekends back to back in your career. I imagine that's happened. At I've, I've done uh, the longest stretch I ever had. I had 10 weekends in a row. Can you, I can't even imagine. All right. I don't race 10 times a year, but um, what is your like thought process for those people who race all the time? Like as far as filling the space in between race weekends, like m maneuvering that properly as far as training goes, is it all about like just getting back to homeostasis and rest or how do you view those five days between weekends? I think one of those, um, after you've raced like a hard weekend, even though you're feeling beat up, I think it's important to, um, with your mobility, to get on some heavier weights and some heavier resistance training uh, immediately after that weekend, just to kind of boost boost up that testosterone a little bit to help the healing process, right? So I, mm -hmm. I remember um, Vinny Testaverde for the New York Jets, the former throwback. And yeah, well, this guy, like, he would, you know, you'd have a full football game, and after the game was over, he'd be in the weight room doing heavy squats. And the reason was to kind of boost that testosterone up. So if you're losing those large muscle groups in a very intense way, it will help you with that recovery. Um, so getting on the weights, like, and obviously that was one example, like practice that is throwback, but there, there is a lot to be said about that. Yeah. And then a lot of it is just, again, nutrition, hydration, allowing your body to recover. Like not, that's not like a, if you're going to do, you know, obviously 10 weekends in a row is you could be viewed as excessive, but I made it through and I enjoyed it. Did you do any quality run work in between back-to-back -back race weekends or only easy, slow stuff? Easy, slow stuff. I mean, everything's a shakeout, a shakeout swim, a shakeout bike, a shakeout run. Um, you know, I, I love to stand up paddleboard. I love to kayak. Just doing anything that's very easy and just letting the body heal so the next weekend. I mean, if you're doing one or two hard efforts, you know, it takes a good week to kind of recover from that. But if you're doing that consistently and then you're having that one weekend, those weekends, consistently where like you're giving a savage effort well i mean how much more do you really need 
you know? And again, that might not be, it might may not be something that's very metric based where you can be like, okay, this is where I'm going to get my gains. But I will tell you that by racing frequently and giving myself that week to, to rest, I always felt like really good. I never felt really like beat up going into the following week. I always felt like I was getting better as I went along. Maybe that's just me. Everybody's a little different. I know Killian just tried that doing a couple times and it did not work for him. Uh, he went out and had an incredible effort in Palmerton where he did really well and you know uh, beat Mark Goodett in a very solid race effort. And then he went out to Utah and he, he struggled. You know, And uh, we all know that Killian is uh, capable of better efforts than that. But that was for him, racing two weekends back-to-back, two hard efforts didn't work. For me, who knows? Maybe, maybe if I didn't do that, my times would be so much faster. But you know what? I just love racing. I love getting out there. So I'm like, if I'm going to do this on a week-by-week-by-week basis, I'm going to have to sacrifice that week and not go out for a hard training run or really try to get that much better. But I have feel that that consistency over time has been um, very productive in far as me being able to do those, like you said earlier, almost those 200 races with that kind of um, same level of success. Like I've never been this throughout those 10 years. I've always been kind of here. I've never had the real highs, but I've never had the real lows either. Mm-hmm. I think that's... um. It's important for people to hear, like, uh, I think we mentioned this in one of our last episodes, Bracken, about people who race all the time, but they feel like they need to do these big hero workouts, even in between race weekends, to still move the needle to get better. And it's a big misconception. If you're truly, if you're the racer who's going out and truly racing when you show up to the start line, and you are going to the well, it takes very small stimulus in between to make sure that you're ready for the next weekend. And a lot of people punch too much in there between race weekends thinking they're going to improve their fitness when all they're doing is detrimenting their next race and then fatigue snowballs and you end up in the hole that you can't get out of. So your answer doesn't surprise me. I was just curious about, about the specifics there. And I think his race schedule and lifestyle go together well, where if he was the lifestyle era of, I just want to do whatever I want when I want, listen to my body, but you're not racing a lot you don't progress as much. And if you only did progressive training, but you raced every weekend, you'd be in trouble too. And I think they, they're probably pretty symbiotic for, for Kevin's training. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the people that um, you work with Bracken, who's, um, who's doing incredible, you know, and has done really well, uh, Dustin living good. And Dustin is the opposite of me. Do we lose you? Sounds like it finally happened. Hold on. Oh, I heard you. There we go. Um, you know, but again, getting back to, um, you know, if you're. Sorry, did, if, you mess if, with your, did you mess with your audio just now? I, I, I clicked off. I lost video for a second. So then I went back to the email, clicked back on join session. And that's when everything came back in better. Is it going through your headphone right now? Yeah, I got you. Okay. It sounds really um, suddenly like echoey and muffled. That's why I ask. Okay. Yeah, and I mean, um, if you're an athlete and, you know, you're looking, um, you know, for a good coach, you know, you know, uh, Kirk, I've never worked with you, so I, I can't speak to that as too much. But, you know, I can assume that your, your philosophies um, 
are somewhat aligned with Brackens. And, uh, and that being said, like here, you're going to have two guys here that they're going to listen to you. They are going to cater things to you and to your lifestyle as best as they possibly can. And they're never going to do anything that's at the expense of your well-being or your overall joy in terms of whatever sport you're looking at or whatever goals you have to make more money. Like, obviously, they have a very successful business, but they've never done it at the expense of somebody else's well-being or happiness. And uh, I couldn't recommend you guys any more to any more of your listeners. And we got to have you on here more often to do these little PSA and these commercial pitches. Yeah. Well, I learned, I learned it firsthand. You know, I absolutely learned it firsthand. And the stuff that you taught me was things that I could just take and I was able to implement on my own for my own lifestyle. Um, I had confidence enough in myself to do that. Um, and it was definitely unique. But if somebody out there needs the full-time guidance, you're there too. But when they didn't, you knew how to back off. And it was, it was incredible. It was one of the best coaching jobs that you probably ever did and didn't know about it. That's funny. Space, right? <laughs> that is one of the harder that one of the one of the things that I think separate good coaches from bad coaches is like reading people and understanding what they actually need because every athlete is different. So just being able to like understand what somebody needs versus shoving something down their throat is actually a really important part of coaching. And you are right; there are a lot of like it's my way or the highway. I believe dragging a tire is the best way to get ready for running uphill. So you're going to drag that damn tire. What if you don't like to drag the tire? Then what? What do you do? I'm, I'm not speaking of anybody in specific. I'm just saying, like, that's a good point you make. But reading situations is very tough as a coach. And it sounds like Bracken, you did a bang up job there. Yep. Well, you know, Kevin. Kevin. Kevin will spit shine anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it comes down to is that, you know what? There's a lot of very smart people out there, and. You know, science is science. There is no debating what science is, but it's uh, getting a good coach is about finding someone who knows their stuff and is highly intelligent, is able to apply that to people correctly, but it's also a relationship business. Like you better be able to, and Kirk, like you said, read people and understand them and create uh, that trust and that relationship. Otherwise, the, the coach-athlete dynamic will not work. And you guys do a masterful job at that. Well, thank you. So, Kevin, we, we have been fortunate enough to spend a lot of time together. And one thing that has come through is that you place, I think because of being a New Yorker, like you're immersed in historical relevance in sports. It's a city steeped in historic feats. And place in history seems to matter to you. So... It, it's come through over our conversations that you do care about legacy and you're at that Very point so. where, where you're putting, I wouldn't say the finishing touches on your legacy, but you're on the part of your career where you, you take a look and say, what else do I need to do to cement my legacy? And so my, I mean, you've run almost 200 OCR races alone, not even talking about the your ultras and your 5Ks and whatever else you've done. And you have your 100 plus combined career podiums. What do you look forward to now as rounding out a, and I don't want to sound this like a, make this sound like a send off, but what do you envision as the perfect rounding out to your career for your legacy? Man, that was uh you're like Bob Costas on that one, man. Holy shit. 
that that was uh wow that was a lot and just um just the fact that you phrased it like that just uh i gotta be honest that that was one of the the most complimentary things or questions i could ever get from another peer you know in this sport because to get that line of questioning just showed such a such a level of uh of respect um for what i've done i actually get kind of emotional talking about it right now because um that that was one hell of a question that really um really embraced you know the the efforts that i've put in you know over the last decade in in the sport of ocr um to be quite frank at, at the end of the day if someone could just talk about me the way that you just did. That is what I would want my legacy to be. You know, someone who said, you know, th this person's been able to do a lot as a, as an athlete, as a broadcaster, as an official, um, as a representative of the sport. And when you combine all those things together, just a person that you felt that you respected and that over the time that you knew them, that you enjoyed their time with them and you thought they were a good person that, that that's what I want my legacy to be. Um, who knows what kind of awards or accolades or things are going to come out with to, to kind of put people in a, in, in a box or a tier of who the, the best people collectively or the most, the people, what people have contributed to the sport over time, you know, and like, uh, I, I would definitely like to be known as someone who's, contributed to the sport at a high level in a lot of different areas. But none of that means anything unless people thought you're a good person. And to get the line of question you just gave me just really made me feel incredible. And, uh, you know, I thank you for that and your friendship more than anything else I could ever ask for in this sport. Well, thank you. you. You mentioned something years ago about the qualification for a Hall of Fame is that can the history of the sport be written without mentioning someone's name? If you can't go through and tell the history of a sport without like in this era mentioning this person, then they belong in it. But if you can write it and like if you if you can tell an accurate history of a time period without mentioning someone and the history doesn't change, then they may not be a candidate for the Hall of Fame. Um, I would say that you've become that, that you can't accurately tell the whole history of OCR without mentioning your name. And I know that your name is synonymous with not one role. But I think that's probably why you have to say the name Kevin Donahue in telling the history of Spartan. So I think you've, you've gotten to that point for sure. But you haven't talked about future much. Like what what is your you, you talk about someday I can't do this. But what is your let's say the things everything comes up, Kevin. How long are you a racer for and what is there left to accomplish? Hopefully pretty, uh, you know, within um, <laughs> not too time. uh not too short into the future, I could say that I'm like Bracken and my dad. Okay. You know, like the, I, I don't know what it was over the last year, but, um, I have just got this deep yearning to, you know, to start a family, you know? So I'm, uh, really excited, like moving forward to, you know, be in a position where I, I, I meet the right girl and, you know, get married and have kids. And I want like, to come to a Spartan race one day and have the most important part of that day being able to go to a kid's race and watching my kid race, 
you know, or like say, Hey, I got to give up this race because, you know, I got to stay home because, you know, my son or daughter isn't feeling well, you know, and, uh, I want to embrace this, you know, having a family and starting that new level of my life and that whole new, you know, um, era of my life with, uh, with new people. I, I feel like the most important people that are going to be in my life, I haven't even met yet. And that would be family, you know? And, uh, I think that is what's going to be make the next, like hopefully 10 years of my life in Spartan or OCR or racing or whatever that much more special is doing it with, with family. I like that answer. And then, you know, you talk about legacy and that's uh, one of the best ways to leave one, isn't it, Kevin? Yeah. Create create new life and they end up following in your footsteps, but your, your plan is to continue to race regularly. Right. I think, and racing specifically, like that's not changing right now. Like that has become your identity. uh, One of your identities. Yeah. uh, Racing, obviously like um, I tell you having the age group, um, the age group classification in that, that division, it gives me so much motivation every year to keep going and keep having fun and, and competing in, in that, that one specific area. And then the broadcasting side of it is, uh, you know, I still have that, that hope that one day we're going to be the Olympics and to be the analyst or the, the sideline or the play by play or doing some form of narration for the Olympics would be like an ultimate dream. I would love to do that. Um, but as far as that goes too, there's other, hopefully there's other broadcasting opportunities that pop up that I love. Um, like the two of you, I love the history of the sport. I love everything about the sport. Um, um, I'm excited for some of the new things that are going to be coming forward in the sport with some of the team aspects and the, the shorter things like, uh, like Spartan cross and, th- and those aspects of it and watching new athletes come in. Um, yeah, so definitely want to race more for, and there's no time limit on that and certainly love talking about it. So I hopefully could continue to do it as a broadcaster. Okay, cool. I, uh, I wanted to know something as we're kind of working towards wrapping this up is since you've raced so much, I, I don't know if you know where you fall as far as like how many races people in the U S have run and where you fall on that list. I'm sure you're up there as far as volume goes, but like looking back, I know you have a lot more races to come over the many years, I'm sure, but decade of racing 200 times, like you got to have some highlights. Like what are some of the things, like some of the races you're the most proud of or some of the things that you've done that have really like sat with you over the years in racing? Any like races where you were, anything that stands out to you? Yeah. Um, the first podium ever, um, it was at Tuxedo at my home course. That, that one had me crying. I, I was crying at the finish line. I came in, I came in third. I'd been fourth so many times and I finally you know, kind of broke that, um, I kind of got over that hump and it just happened to be a weekend where it was like a whole Spartan weekend at my house. And it seemed like everybody in the house hit a podium, you know, and I, I was able to do it with them. So we, we, I probably had seven people at the house, probably six of those people hit podiums. So it was a lot of fun. Um, the hundredth podium that I got again, collectively between, um, the elite and then the master's elite, um, it was a master's podium. It was at Fenway and, uh, crossing the finish line, knowing that that was my hundredth podium. And then it was a win. Um, meant like that one, like I was kind I was crying about that one too. And that was a huge goal that I had. Um, and then, uh, I tell you one of the best ones was, uh, West Virginia, 2017. I came in second for 
against a Hobie call like I had in so many times in the in the Masters division. But I don't generally like doing long races, and that day was incredibly hot, um, and I don't like the heat. So for me to take second behind Hobie in the Masters at West Virginia that year, it was the first time we had done it. It was a brutal, amazing course, hot day. And to finish that on the podium in that position was like, for me, that was huge. And plus it was like kind of a national series race. So that, that was probably the, one of the most important ones to me as well. That was a long day too, right? That was like a 15, 16 mile race. That was a long beast. That was about, yeah, that was a good um, 16 mile beast as well. That was the day Hobie didn't have his best his best day, I believe. I mean, he still ran very, very fast, but that was the day you outsprinted him to the finish. Yeah, twenty seventeen. But I'll tell you what: a lot of people would pay a lot of money to stand up on a podium next to Hobie Call, no matter what the circumstances. That's worth its weight in gold, right there, in my opinion. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, that day didn't happen because the podium took so long, and he had to fly home. Ugh. So. I didn't get a chance to stand with him. Yeah, I felt cheated out of that, but I, I had done it, been able to do it a few other times, so I, I did get that opportunity, which is great. He's not only is he a legend, a legend of the sport, but he's a, he's a, a legendary good guy too. The Kevin was uh, the question was posed to you, Kevin, about your most memorable races, but I feel like it's only right to wrap this up with my most memorable Kevin Donahue. <laughs> yes, and, and the, I could go a lot of directions with this one. And there's a lot of humorous ones, but I guess I'll go with Kevin, the person memory. I did a stadium race in New York City and got snowed in. Denver airport was snowed out. I could not get home. And Kevin picked me up, drove me out to his lake house and kept me there for three or four days until flights were back up. Took care of all my food, took me to his pizza place in town, wouldn't let me pay for a dime. Uh, Just housed me, gave me anything I wanted. If he had to leave, just gave me run of the joint. It was just, he just dropped everything and took me in for half a week because I was, I was stranded in town and then drove me back at like five or four 30 in the morning to the airport when I had to get out, just went out of his way for, you know, obviously a friend, but also a competitor who had just raced against him that day in order to, uh, to make life a little bit easier on me and my family. I would do it again in a heartbeat, brother. It was a great week. We went out and saw some awesome upstate New York trail running, and we did yeah. some uh, cliff jumping into water, and he just made the most out of what was a very stressful and and bad week because Lisa was at home with young babies, and I couldn't get there, and I was stressed about it, and I had work to do, and he he made it as 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 I don't know, as smooth and seamless and welcoming as it could possibly be, and we got Big, Mike, Big Mike's Pizza. <laughs> That's right. Man. That was my favorite. It doesn't exist anymore, unfortunately, but I got some good spots I can still take you to. But Bracken, like Bracken's always been an, an incredible friend. He's always been tremendously supportive of me. And uh, if I was ever in a jam like that, th- th- he'd be the first person to, to help me out. Um, and uh, regardless, you know, I would do I would do anything for that man. Absolutely. Look at this love fest we got going on here today. Really? We yeah. love this hug. Uh, let's talk specifics then, just uh, to close this out, Kevin. As far as the rest of the year goes, if people are looking forward to seeing you uh, out on course or what your plans are through the end of the year, what, what are they? Well, I'll see you in West Virginia. Um, 
I don't know when this broadcast, uh, this podcast airs, but for us, that will be um, in a little more than a week. Actually, in a week. Yeah, so I'm heading down there next Friday. Today is a Friday. Um, and I got to look at the schedule for September um, for Spartan because I'm really looking excited to the 15K at uh, OCR World Championships at Stratton. Um, I've done the 3K the last two times I've done it there, which was the North American Regional. Um, but I decided this year to go a little longer and challenge myself a little bit and throw my hand, uh, my hat into the ring for the 15K for the 45 to 49-year-old division. So I'm looking forward to that and doing a lot of hill work. Um, then after that, um, New Jersey, um, if you guys want to come up that weekend, you got a place to stay. I'm not renting a house out. It's going to be a big Spartan weekend that first week of October. And there's a possibility I might be going to Abu Dhabi to help with some of the preparation for the Spartan World Championships. That's not written in stone. And obviously with the, the climate in the world right now in the Middle East, I don't know what's going to happen with that. But the plan is to go there and um, help do some media stuff, boost some of the registration for the event. And then who knows? Um, what other tasks I'd be doing out there. So that might be the whole fall. So I really don't know. It's kind of up in the air. So you're still, you're in touch with Spartan on like an employment potential basis regularly. You're in that mix of people. Yeah. It's like, you know, as a subcontractor for doing a lot of these like unique special things that pop up, like I'm not on the, I'm not a, a a full-time employee or even a part-time employee. Um, Basically, that that guy they call up for specific reasons, whether it's a broadcast thing, a media thing, or in this case, kind of more of a you know ambassador kind of role because I have a, a relationship with a gym that's out there that I used to consult for, and there's a kind of a, a mix between working with the gym as a host center. It's called Desert Shield Fitness as a place to kind of host event for Spartan because they have Spartan obstacles already built into the place. So there's a lot of different things I could do for them out there. We're trying to figure out what the fit is. So, that again, that's still kind of up in the air. So the fall is kind of a crapshoot right now for me. Okay. Sweet. I thought you'd be racing more. I thought you'd be rattling off another dozen. I, I, I Honestly, if the, the, the calf is holding up awesome right now in training, and the, the wrist seems to be like a little back and forth, but it looks like if I had to race every weekend right now, I could. And I'm happy about that, so – um, I could be doing like 15 races by 10, 15 more races by the end of the year, or it might be five. I just don't know. All right. I don't have anything left. I want to check off. Do you, Mr. Brackenstein? I think we're at a nice natural wrapping up point here. <laughs> anything, uh, what, what else do you, anything else we didn't ask you, Kevin, that you want the people to know? Uh, no, just, um, you know, every chance, just tell you, every chance to get an opportunity to go out there and race and see your friends, take advantage of it. Because if anything we've learned last year is it's not always guaranteed. So uh, take that opportunity to give your friends a hug, shake their hands, say hello, spend a little time extra with them after the course, um, a little extra time talking to them at the start line, and enjoy it just a little bit more. I like it. Who do you have supporting you these days? Who, who do you have to shout out and thank? Um, always, uh, Maui Jim, uh, Boku Superfoods and Athletic Brewing Company. Excellent. That's a good fit for you. 
Yeah, Kevin's Kevin's a teetotaler to bring back an old timey <laughs> phrase. <laughs> I'm not much of a drinker, and I'm not really a drinker at all. So that that non-alcoholic beer goes down really good after race. Now I can feel like one of the boys, almost one of the 46 year old boys. Well, Kevin, thanks for, <laughs> for making time here. I'm glad we were finally able to connect. We'll see you out there soon. Guys, it was an honor and a pleasure to be on here with you, and I can't wait to see both of you again soon, for sure. Right on. Thanks, Kevin. You got it, boys. Later.